Energy Transition Now with David Linden. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, David Linden, the head of Energy Transition for the Westwood Global Energy Group. And you're listening to another great episode of Energy Transition Now, where we discuss what the transition really means for the oil and gas and the broader energy industry. We're increasingly, I guess, being urged to listen to the science, to follow the science, um, to, to make some real world action on climate change. Um, and so while we have touched on the science uh, in this series before, we had the glaciologist Martin Seeger in the last series um, being a great, great example of that. Um, my very special guest today is Zeke Hausfather, who's the climate research lead at Stripe and you guessed it, a climate scientist. <laughs> so welcome, Zeke. Thank you. It's great to be here. Perfect. Um, I think you are actually officially our first uh, California-based guest as well. So you get to wear that special badge for today as well. So thank you for that. <laughs> I won't brag about our weather here this time of year. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I was thinking about the weather. Now look outside my window at this time, um, and it is rather pathetic in comparison i'm sure but but you do have a heat wave in another way i suppose we had a heat wave so yeah pros and cons well, our, our challenge is we now uh, have a smoky season the wildfires have gotten so bad that there's a good month or so of the summer where we have to keep all our doors and windows closed and uh, can't go outside as much as we used to interesting yeah i saw you you posted something about that there aren't actually necessarily more fires it's just that they burn for longer and i guess more intensity and there's more smokiness i guess as a result yeah so we actually have fewer fires here in california uh on an annual basis on average than we had 50 years ago um, but the typical fire burns five times more area uh, and part of the reason is that you know we have both so much built up dead undergrowth in the forests and they're so dry um that it's really a tinderbox goodness all right well uh sure hope there aren't too many uh this season at all but um look i I, th I think it's always nice to start off with these sort of podcasts to introduce, you know, because we, we do quite a wide ranging set of conversations with different people from different backgrounds. And I always like to do a bit of a, a kind of a, a, a basic intro as to what is it you do and how do you do it type thing. Um, and I saw actually, it's quite interesting. I saw it on your Twitter feed and I saw it on my one. Someone had, had noted it to me, but there was a cartoon um, that came out where there was this exchange of two people. One of them said, I need to warn you about the future. And the other ones responded saying, holy sugar, you a time traveler. <laughs> and the other guy responded and said, no, I'm a climate scientist. And the other guy said, boring. <laughs> so I thought that was a pretty harsh critique of essentially your role. So I, I want you to <laughs> take that as your challenge for today uh, as to, you know, essentially defend climate scientists and, and the work that you do and you know we'll, we'll work to dispel that notion but uh mm. you know that, that, i thought that was pretty harsh maybe it's our new communication strategy we just need to uh, pretend to be time travelers from the future and uh <laughs> the matrix is back um <laughs> okay so um with that in mind then i guess essentially you know for folks who don't know, you know, we, we, we've talked to a lot of people from the industry, we've talked to various academics, uh, etc. But we haven't talked, as I said, a, a, a proper climate scientist, although a glaciologist would argue, of course, they form part of the climate science community. Um, but, you know, can you just maybe just explain to us what is 
climate science and, and, and what kind of role does it play for us? So you sort of nailed it when you said glaciology is, is part of the bigger community. You know, climate science is a, a very big tent uh, within which there's a lot of subdisciplines. So there's atmospheric physicists who sort of study the radiative transfer of gases in the atmosphere. There's great glaciologists who study sort of ice sheets. There's oceanographers who study, you know, ocean carbon cycles, biogeochemistry, um, ocean pH. Uh, there are paleoclimatologists who study climate proxies of the Earth's distant past. Uh, there's climate modelers who sort of build physics-based simulations of the climate's future. There is observational climate people who collect all the data from ships and weather stations and try to stitch it together in the past in the, the most accurate way. Uh, and sort of every one of these is its own silo with thousands of scientists working within it. And we sort of have various community or efforts like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, where we try to synthesize all of those different disciplines into sort of a, a single comprehensive picture of you know, this is how the climate has changed in the past, and this is how it may change in the future. Um, and then, of course, feeding into that, there's a whole separate world of energy system modelers uh, who sort of develop models of what the future might look like in terms of our emissions and our energy mix. So are they essentially individuals that are looking at different parts of the climate, but from a quite a specific narrow lens? Or, you know, because it's like a glaciologist, I would say, sounds like someone who's looking at ice, but they're mm. trying to work out what that means globally so that has you know, what's what's the kind of gen general impact is that is that fair to say yeah i mean it depends a lot on the scientist you know one scientist may spend their entire career studying one glacier in antarctica and be the world expert on that specific thing and you know have more knowledge than anyone else um other scientists try to be a bit more generalist they might not have quite that deep a subject area knowledge on on any particular part of climate science uh, but they dabble in a lot of different areas and try to do higher impact things and, and sort of synthesize different parts of climate science together. Uh, I, I definitely tend to think of myself a bit on the latter side. Um, I like dabbling, <laughs> but I also very much admire the specialists who who dig super deep into one topic area. Yeah, I, I guess the difficulty I found when I first looked at the space was trying to work out who the expert is, because you're right, someone might know something very specific about an area but trying to translate that and help people understand what that really means are they looking at it too narrowly are they looking at just that area and so yeah of course they're going to make that statistical significant argument because essentially that makes sense in their world but hang on the guy over here who's looking at a different part of climate science might completely disagree and so so how, how is it someone like yourself who goes okay let me take all these different bits and pieces and put those together that that's kind of needed or does that kind of just happen naturally as you say through the the ipcc and places like that where all those views come together so i think it's a mix of both you know there's there's a fair number of generalists who are sort of trying to to put the pieces together all the time but there's also these big community assessment processes like the ipcc which happens every five years or so or seven years uh but also there's increasingly a uh, very robust national uh climate assessment uh, operations. So the US, we have a, a national climate assessment that happens regularly in the UK. You know, my friend Richard Betts over there at the Met Office and many others are involved in, in the UK version of that. Um, and European countries have their own. So, you know, it, it is a challenge because it's such a big area with so many moving parts and so many complexities going from like socioeconomic and energy modeling to climate physics modeling to observational data to everything else that, you know, you do no, no one person is going to know it all, and it's good to have these big community processes to to bring together thousands of scientists and synthesize, you know, tens of thousands of research papers. 
um, in order to you know give us the best picture of of what is going on, what we know, and and where the remaining uncertainties are, because you know the Earth is a very complex system, um, and while we have a lot more confidence in what we know now than say 50 years ago, uh, there still are some pretty big unknowns when it comes to the future of our climate. Come back to that in just a minute then, but what if I was to sort of be a let's say a non-scientist coming at this and sort of would say, okay, so what are the top five things that you're looking at and you're constantly focused on as to sort of say that these are the climate indicators we need to worry about? I mean, to me, it sounds obvious. It's something like temperature and carbon, you know, emissions, parts per millions or whatever uh, that, that, that you look at. But what, what are the kind of, call it top five, you might have more, you might have less, <laughs> sort of simplify the story for us all. But what is it essentially that, that you know, despite all these different specialisms what are the top things that people focus on to give us an indicator of what's happening to our climate and yeah i mean there, there's a huge amount of climate data that we're measuring particularly in the last you know 30 years when we have satellite measurements you know monitoring the earth in real time uh, but there's definitely a few things that stand out both because you know they're iconic they're long-term records and they're also some of the most physically meaningful in terms of measuring what's driving a lot of the impacts we're seeing. Uh, and the first this is probably the one that gets the most attention, which is simply the global surface temperature record. Uh, I actually helped produce one of the, you know, four different uh, global surface temperature records that are that are out there uh, with uh, a group called Berkeley Earth. Um, but essentially what we do for that is we're gathering all of the data from all of the land-based weather stations, the ocean ships, the automated buoys, um, you know, various other data sensors, and stitching them all together into a record of the Earth's average temperature. Uh, and by looking at that, we see that, you know, the Earth has warmed about 1.2 degrees centigrade since the late 1800s. Uh, and most of that warming, about one degree of it actually, has happened in the last 50, 60 years. Um, okay. So that's one of the major indicators. Uh, another that is a shorter record, but in some ways is, is actually more meaningful from a climate standpoint is ocean heat content. Because um, the atmosphere is actually not a very good store of heat. Um, you know, air does not absorb much heat. And so because of that, the atmosphere can vary a fair bit in terms of how hot it is. Um, whereas upwards of 90% of the heat that's being trapped by greenhouse gases ends up going into the oceans. And so ocean heat content is a measurement of how the amount of heat in the oceans has changed over time. Um, and nowadays we have this uh, wonderful network uh, called Argo of uh, about 3,500 uh, little robotic buoys that every day they dive deep down about 2,000 meters into the ocean and they slowly come back up measuring temperature, salinity, pH, various other things. And then when they get to the top, they send that data up to a satellite um, called Jason, you know, Jason and the Argonauts. Um, <laughs> and so for the last 20 years or so, we've had this really robust network uh, giving us, you know, near real time measurements of ocean heat content. And the thing with ocean heat content is, you know, it pretty much sets a new record every year. Like the surface varies a bit. You know, some years are warmer than others. El Nino years are warmer than La Nina years, which is a sort of mechanism that redistributes heat from the ocean to the atmosphere. But almost every single year sets a new record for ocean heat content. Uh, and that's because that's really where all the energy in the climate system is going. And so it's really a, a very robust measure of the amount of heat trapped in the Earth's system by greenhouse gases. Uh, I guess the third major indicator I'd point to is, is simply the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Uh, you know, we started measuring CO2 in the atmosphere in Mauna Loa in the 1940s. Um, before that, we have fairly robust measurements from both uh, 
Greenland and Antarctica of the amount of CO2 trapped in bubbles in the ice, um, which you can use to get a sense of how much CO2 is in the atmosphere at various periods of time. The, the nice thing about CO2 in particular, CO2 is not nice for many reasons, but one of the nice things about it from a physics standpoint is that it's well mixed throughout the atmosphere. You know, the CO2 concentration in North America is going to be the same as, you know, plus or minus one or two parts per million as Antarctica or Europe or Australia. Uh, and so being able to measure it anywhere in the world gives you a good sense of what it is everywhere in the world, um, which is one of the reasons that even though we don't have you know, great modern observations of CO2 prior to the 1940s, we can actually be quite confident in what global values were, you know, for the past, you know, at least 4 million years or so, um, which provides a really good record. Um, and, you know, we know from these measurements that today, the CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere are far higher than anything the world has seen for the last few million years at a minimum, and probably the last few tens of millions of years. So just as a quick one there, so that, that's kind of your top three. I like that so far. But um, <laughs> why is it, to me, it's really the first time I've heard that we've got such good measurements on ocean heat content, and it's actually far more important in some respects in terms of explaining what's going on. Why, why is it in some respects I've not heard about it as much, and I'm hearing much more about CO2 concentrations and 1.2 degrees and all those sorts of things. I mean, if you think about any of the kind of groups that are out there, like, you know, is it because it's kind of what Paris hooked onto? Everyone hooks onto what Paris said. And so it's the 1.52 degree thing. And therefore, then it's about, you know, measuring and the, I don't know, coming up with plans aligned with that just seems easier rather than trying to work out what's happening to the ocean or. I mean, it's a good question. I think one of the main reasons we don't hear as much about it is we don't live in the oceans. <laughs> <laughs> we we live on the surface, and so the surface temperature is is what tends to get all the attention. Um, but also, it's the record is reliable for surface temperatures back to the you know mid eighteen hundreds. Um, you know, maybe plus or minus a tenth of a degree or two. Um, for ocean heat content, you know, we really only have very high quality records since the early two thousands. You know, there are, there are a lot of different groups that have produced reconstructions going back to the nineteen fifties or so. Uh, or even before in a few cases, um, but the uncertainties are much larger with that. Um, you know, we can we can definitely see the direction it's going. You know, there's there's no possibility that ocean heat content was as high in the 1950s as it is, as it is today. You know, it's not that type of uncertainty, but it's it's not nearly as precise when you go back more than two decades. And so for that reason, I think a lot of people have treated the surface temperature as a, a much more iconic indicator. Um, and in a lot of ways, you know, surface temperature maps better with the sort of the impacts that we see, you know, in terms of heat waves, uh, extreme weather events, all those sort of things. The ocean heat content tracks very closely with sea level rise. So, um, yeah, different drivers of, of different things. And if we come back to the idea that, I think from, from what I can hear from you there, is, is we've essentially started to get better at A, measuring, and B, understanding what's happening to our climate. And, you know, I guess you also said that there's still a lot of unknowns. Maybe it's worth just dealing with that question there for a minute. How, how much of an unknown are we talking about here? I mean, I mean, there's lots of things that we don't understand in our world. Obviously, it took us a while to work out everything from mm -hmm. gravity to, to whatever, right? But is, is this, a, a, you know, science will, will always have unknowns, of course, but how, how big of a, a field of, unknown is there out there? 
Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And, and it's useful to go back a bit in time. You know, scientists first postulated the idea of CO2 as a greenhouse gas and increasing the atmosphere causing warming in the late 1800s with Arrhenius, uh, Tyndall, Fourier. Um, and that sort of languished a bit, particularly after some papers that were published that suggested, oh, wait, maybe it's the atmosphere is saturated, so adding more CO2 doesn't actually have much of an impact. Turns out those ones are wrong, but they really led to not much focus on the field for about 50 years. And so the 1950s, the issue was sort of rediscovered in the in the scientific world, uh, especially as we started getting these records of atmospheric CO2, suggesting it was increasing. Uh, and then it was really in the late 1960s, early 1970s, we started seeing an explosion of, uh, and really the birth of what we'd call modern climate science uh, with sort of the first physics-based climate models, uh, huge investments in, in increasing the number of observations we have, and, and specifically going back and collecting all these historical observations, all these handwritten ship captain logs of temperature measurements from, you know, 1890 that had been sitting in a basement somewhere in, you know, London for 80 years. Um, and then, you know, in the early 90s, the IPCC was started uh, to sort of help synthesize and bring together the scientific community and, you know, coordinate a lot of the modeling work that was done, as well as the scenario planning. Um, and so, you know, over time, we've gotten a lot more confidence and a lot more understanding of these systems and a lot better ability to, to model them and measure them. Um, and so today, there's a few things that are, are pretty in- incontrovertible, like even a lot of the scientists who are more sort of skeptical of, of the severity of climate change would agree on the basics. And that is, you know, CO2 in the atmosphere is increasing. That increases is due to human activity. You know, the amount that's in the atmosphere very closely matches the amount of coal, oil, and gas we burn. Um, that CO2 is a greenhouse gas. It traps heat. You know, without CO2, the earth would be much, much cooler. Life would not be possible, most likely, in, in most places. Um, and that, you know, if we keep burning fossil fuels, the world will keep warming. Um, so that's what we all agree on. Where there's some disagreement is exactly how much the earth will warm in the future and that really comes down to a question of what other factors change as co2 increases that will either enhance or reduce the amount of warming we'd experience um so if we were to ignore everything else in the earth, earth system and only increase co2 in the atmosphere if we doubled the amount of co2 in the atmosphere the earth would warm about one degree c um which is not that much. I mean, it's obviously it's it's a decent amount, but uh, it's, it's not the average, that. right? It's some areas yeah. are hit more than others, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But in reality, given all of the complex interactions of the Earth system, we act, we think that if we double the amount of CO two in the atmosphere, the Earth will warm closer to three degrees. Uh, and the reason for that is because of what we call climate feedbacks. Uh, so the biggest one of those is water vapor. Water vapor itself is a very strong greenhouse gas, but it's also very short-lived in the atmosphere. If you get too much water vapor, it falls out as rain. Um, but the amount of water vapor that can be in the air before it rains out is determined by the temperature of the air. So a warmer world is one where the air can effectively hold more water vapor, which means that there's more heat being trapped by that water vapor since water vapor itself absorb certain frequencies of, of outgoing long wave radiation, it's, it's a greenhouse gas. And so that water vapor feedback by itself, you know, adds roughly doubles the effect of, of CO2 warming. Um, on top of that, there's large changes in the reflectivity of the Earth's surfaces associated with warming. So, you know, as snow and ice melt, it gets replaced by darker surfaces, you know, trees, vegetation that absorb more of the sun's light. As Sea ice melts, it gets replaced by darker ocean water that absorbs more of the sun's light, bounces less back up to space. That enhances the amount of warming. Um, 
there's other feedbacks that can work the opposite way. So the warmer the surface gets, the more energy goes back out to space. In fact, the amount of energy going back out to space from the surface uh, is the fourth power of the, te uh, the temperature of the surface. Um, and so that's a big factor that prevents sort of climate from running away and, and spiraling and sort of out of control warming is that you sort of get much, much more energy going back to space as the surface temperature increases. Um, and then there's just some big unknowns around uh, things like clouds and exactly how they will respond. You know, some types of clouds, uh, particularly those that are higher up in the atmosphere, tend to be better at trapping heat. Uh, other types of clouds, such as those that are lower, closer to the surface, tend to be better at reflecting the sun's rays back to space. The mix of high and low clouds you get as the Earth warms and exactly how that change changes is an area of, of pretty big uncertainty. Uh, and so we're not going to know precisely you know, how much warming we're going to get until we get better measurements and better models of those things. Um, there's another big uncertainty around what we call aerosols, which are not spray cans, uh, but rather little floating particles in the atmosphere, things like uh, sulfur dioxide, uh, that, you know, are reflective. So they're like slightly shiny. So some of the sun's light bounces off them, goes back to space. They can also serve as cloud condensation nuclei. So you need a certain amount of bits of dust and, and aerosols in the air for clouds to form readily. And so the more you have, the more clouds you can form, and then clouds have their own complicated climate effects. Uh, and so, you know, exactly how aerosols are affecting the climate and how our emissions of them are going to change over time will also have a big impact on, uh, you know, the, the degree of climate change we're going to get. Uh, and then the final big area of uncertainty is our own emissions. You know, we could have a world where we double CO2 by the end of the century, or we could have a world where we cut it close to zero. And obviously that's going to have a huge effect on, on the results. But if we sort of back up a little bit and look at what we expect to happen in the future, uh, there's a metric that climate scientists like to use uh, that I alluded to a little bit earlier that we call climate sensitivity. And the way we usually define climate sensitivity is if we double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, say from pre-industrial levels, so it actually doesn't really matter that much where you start, uh, how much warming would we expect to experience, you know, over the next few hundred years, uh, if we just double it and hold it there. Uh, and, you know, for a very long time, that range has been pretty wide. So back in the in late 1970s, the first real estimate of this uh, was the, the Charney report. And they said, if we double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, the world will probably warm somewhere between 1.5 degrees centigrade and 4.5 degrees centigrade. You know, flash forward nearly 30 years in the 2013 IPCC report, they said, if we double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, the world will probably warm somewhere between 1.5 and 4.5 degrees centigrade. So the fact that we hadn't really reduced that uncertainty substantially in, you know, nearly 30 years was not great. Um, I mean, to be honest, the original estimate was probably too precise. Um, but we have had some good news in that particular area. Uh, the most recent IPCC report that we published this past year actually narrowed that range substantially for the first time in, in 30 years. And they say now that if we double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, the world will likely warm somewhere between 2.5 C and 4 C. So okay. we're so getting it much more. The narrowing, but actually the bad news is the lower boundary's gone up. Because <laughs> you got yeah, from 1.5 to 2.5, yeah, so. But the upper boundary's gone down. So now it's yes. you know 2.5 okay, to 4 <laughs> instead of 1.5 to 4.5. So there's there's a silver lining there, but uh, sorry, it, yeah, it means gloomy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. It it does mean that you know we're less likely, or at least it seems now that we're less likely to get lucky and have you know climate sensitivity end up being low and much less warming than we expected.
But I guess part of it's down to the, as you, as you, I guess, suggest, Gary, is this, it's just a better understanding of what's going on, ability to measure it, ability to forecast it. It's just got better. And so you can mm-hmm. start to narrow that range of uncertainty going forward. It just seems like a natural pathway to go down. Yeah. Um, you know, we're getting better measurements of these things. We're getting higher resolution models on faster supercomputers. Um, m- models are an interesting area. You know, climate models are, are far from perfect. Uh, you know, the Earth <laughs> is an incredibly complicated system. Um, you know, it's it's hard to get everything right. Uh, but at the same time, they've really improved by leaps and bounds over the last few decades. Um, we, I, I actually led uh, a group of scientists uh, on a research project uh, Two years ago now, um, we published a paper looking at all of the climate models that have been published since the first one in 1970 that said, we think this is going to happen to the world by this date, you know, some sort of, of concrete prediction of, of what would happen to global temperatures, global surface temperatures. Uh, and so we looked at all of those models published between 1970 and the mid 2000s um, and then compared them to what actually happened after they were published. Uh, and it was interesting, you know, most models actually did a pretty good job of, of predicting the warming that occurred. Um, you know, 11 of the 18 models that we found, you know, were pretty much spot on. They're indistinguishable from the, the observed trend in, in temperatures in the real world. Uh, and of those that, you know, didn't perfectly match, I think four had slightly too much warming and three had, had a bit too low warming. Um, but by and large, you know, these models did a good job of, of predicting the future after they were published. So, you know, out of sample, so to speak. Um, And that's particularly impressive for the early models, the ones published in, say, the 1970s, when we didn't really even know that the world was warming. Like, we didn't have a great collection of historical temperatures back then. We hadn't gone around the world and digitized all these old ship logs. Like, most scientists in the 1970s thought that global temperatures had been flat or even slightly cooling for the last few decades. Um, in part because our records are almost entirely based on weather stations in the northern hemisphere on the land, which did show that they didn't have any ocean data. Um, And so to be able to say that, like, hey, the world has been cooling, we think, for the last three decades, but that's going to reverse. And we're actually going to see not 0.6 C warming by the year 2000, as uh, Wally Broker did in his paper in Science in in 1975, was pretty remarkable. And what's more remarkable is we saw exactly that, not 0.6 C warming by the year 2000 relative to, to 1975 when he published that paper. So the the performance of, you know, these old climate models, which were much more basic than the sort of supercomputer models we have today, you know, the fact that they could get it right uh, is definitely encouraging that our current models are not too far off. Very interesting. I guess people are, I guess people can take a bit of hope or, 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 or uh, uh, take a view on the fact that look things have got better they're more accurate but essentially the the, the picture or the outlook um is still the same right it is essentially a world that's getting warmer um etc cetera, etc cetera. um but and, and and you know there have been some effective whether it's the, the hockey stick kind of diagram that's come out around you know world temperatures or um i forgot the who who came up with that image of the the the, the changing color bars as well yeah. you know that ed, ed hawkins and the climate strikes, ed hawkins yeah. that's the chap yeah absolutely <laughs> and i think we'll see that on the on i think it's greta's new book that's coming out or of the different essays she's collected soon as well but you know that sort of imagery it, it, you know you almost get this is the way that people will ultimately consume some of this and there's been a lot of activity a lot of noise we've had cop 26, et cetera, and others before that who've, who've made all these warnings and, and let people know that you need to change, et cetera. 
what is it in your mind though that that isn't getting people to maybe make enough or take that seriously enough because if we did take it all seriously right now every country in the world and every person in the world and every company in the world would be committed to saying okay actually sorry about that let me just um recognize that we've done a very good scientific you know backed up study here and this tells us over many years over multiple studies thousands of scientists etc cetera, etc cetera, who globally all agree that this is the problem why are people not responding to this kind of thing is i guess the kind of question i'm trying to ask here it's a big question i mean i think it's important to emphasize that we are we are responding you know not necessarily as quickly as we'd like but we're we are starting to see yeah. real movement um particularly in the last two years we've started to see more and more countries around the world including India, China, EU, the UK, the US, Brazil, Japan, commit to get their emissions down to net zero by the middle of the 21st century. Yeah. Um, in fact, countries representing over 75% of global emissions have now made those commitments. And if they followed through on all those commitments, we would actually succeed, most likely at least, in limiting warming to below two degrees, if not 1.5. So, you know, I, I think we should emphasize that there is there are some things moving in the right direction. You know, clean energy is getting cheap, global coal use likely peaked back in 2013. And is probably in structural decline. Electric vehicles are 14% of global vehicle sales in the last quarter. You know, there's a lot of trends moving in the right direction. They're just not happening quickly enough to meet our most ambitious climate goals. Um, and you know, it's it's easy for politicians to say they're going to do something in 30 to 50 years. It's a lot harder to actually take concrete actions today that put us on a pathway to meet those goals. So, you know, I, I certainly think we should treat those net zero commitments, you know in 2050 with a, a proverbial boulder, boulder of salt, uh, particularly, you know, for those of us not in the UK uh, who, who don't have this sort of thing, you know, actually legally mandated uh, and and have governments that, you know, can, can get stuff done to, to put us toward that direction. But that said, you know, it, it is a good question of why we're not doing it faster and why there isn't more impetus around these things. Um, and, you know, there's a couple of different answers to that, right? One is that we as a society are just really bad at dealing with long-term problems. You know, our election cycles are short-term. The issues we tend to focus on day-to-day -day are short-term around the economy or crime or those sort of things. And so while a lot of people care about climate and in the abstract, you know, they see it as an issue that's less pressing right now than all these other things that are facing them. Um, and so it's hard to keep people's attention on it for a long period of time. Now that's starting to change a little bit as we're starting to see more and more extreme events that are, you know, at least in part attributable to climate change. You know, here in California, for example, as I alluded to earlier, you know, we now have a smoke season, which is a pretty big impact of climate change staring us in the face. Or, you know, my my home here was built in the 1970s, never had any sort of air conditioning. We had to put one in last summer after enough uh, days of, you know, close to 40 C. Um, and so, you know, there, there are definitely changes that are getting to be big enough that people are starting to see them, but it's just hard to break through uh, relative to all these other priorities people have. The other challenge is that it's become, at least in some countries, a very political issue. Um, you know, particularly in the US, Canada and Australia, um, there's a very big left-right split, not just on the preferred solutions to climate change, but even the extent to which it's a problem that requires addressing. Um, and while I think it is very good to have public policy debates around the solutions, you know, I think when the science itself becomes politicized, it 
you know, can lead to, to big problems for society. Interesting. No, I, it is a difficult one. Is it, is it a technical problem? Is it a political problem? Is it a, a social uh, problem in terms of moving things forward? I guess that's that, that that's almost like a circular debate there because it kind of just depends on, on where you are in the world as well. Um, but you alluded to some of the kind of the progress points that we have made and you, you sort of listed a few just quickly there, but maybe we could just quickly revisit some of those. If if we were to sort of take our heads out of the the doom and gloom, you know, the, the pathway we're on is is not the pathway we want to be and we've got to be sceptical about some of the, I don't want to say politicians, but essentially that's it, uh, commitments we're making. What What is it in your mind that we have achieved that is actually a very positive thing that that's, you know, leading us down the right path? Yeah, so so to borrow a, a term that was popularized in uh, COVID, you know, we, we really have bent down the curve of future emissions uh, in a way that wasn't true a decade ago. You know, a, a decade ago, it, it certainly seemed plausible the world was headed toward a 21st century dominated by coal uh, with, you know, four, even five degrees warming by the end of the century. Um, you know, global coal use had almost doubled in the previous decade. You know, China was building a new coal plant every three days. Um, and today we're in a very different world. Uh, coal use has plateaued globally uh, and even, you know, mostly plateaued in China. Uh, they're still building new plants, but the utilization of those plants is, is way down. Um, you know, we are in a world of increasingly cheap, clean energy alternatives. Um, you know, renewables have become much cheaper, much faster than I think anyone anticipated a, a decade ago. Um, you know, we've seen huge drops in the price of batteries. We've seen electric vehicles become much more cost competitive. Um, we've seen LEDs take off and the lighting market, which use a fraction of the energy of, of conventional lighting. Um, so I think we've we've sort of lucked out in some ways on the technology front. Now, technology alone is not going to save us. Uh, you know, we need policy as well. Uh, but I think we underestimate uh, a bit the extent to which technology enables policy. You know, the fact that we are seeing the Chinas and the Indias of the world commit to ambitious net zero goals is in large part due to the fact that they now see a pathway to achieve those goals that doesn't come at a cost to their development priorities and their economic growth. Uh, and so to the extent that we have made clean energy cheap, I think it enables us to have more ambitious policy because the costs of, of that policy are more palatable. You know, a world where solar power is 10 times cheaper than it was a decade ago is one where countries are a lot more willing to commit to build it um, than if there's sort of this huge premium that they're having to pay to transition away from fossil fuels that then also comes at the expense of, of other priorities they have. Okay. I mean, you're, it's an interesting point around the technology side of things. There's clearly different camps who say technology will solve everything. So don't subsidize anything. Don't, you know, get involved politics. The market will sort itself out because there's a problem, which is climate change. And you'll go in and you'll solve all the problems. Um, what in your mind, if you were to sort of look at the different, call them pathways for argument's sake, what are the actual pathways that we can take to try and reach our target, call it 1.5 for argument's sake, um, uh, or, or you know, at least below two degrees um, going forward? It, you know, are there certain technologies that we will have to go if we want to take the technology angle, or are there sort of certain other levers that we're going to have to pull that are going to get us there? Or are we are we too late, in fact, and actually look, sorry, David, you know, being very optimistic here and asking for things that, you know, you just can't pull out of a bag, unfortunately. Um, 
I mean, I, th I think it depends a bit on the pathway, right? You know, I, I would argue that we're, to be honest, probably too late for 1.5 degrees, um, at least okay. in the absence of a world where we get very, very lucky with, you know, planetary scale deployment of carbon removal technologies later in the century, which, okay. you know, I, I work on those for my day job at Stripe. <laughs> uh, so hopefully, hopefully that's a future we, we could see. But, you know, I think we also need to not bet on that. Um, like the, the challenge with 1.5 degrees is we're at 1.2 today. You know, we have this vanishingly small remaining carbon budget to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. And in the absence of, of net negative emit emissions, of, of removing more from the atmosphere than we're emitting, we'd have to cut all global emissions to zero in the next 20 years or so to avoid passing 1.5 degrees. You know, if, if you allow a lot of negative emissions, like pretty much all of our models do, you can, you know, say we need to get to net zero globally by 2050, 2055. Even that is not consistent with the, the pledges that most countries have made today. So I, I just don't see much indication that there is the political will globally to make the degree of cuts needed to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. Um, uh, a particularly stark statistic is so uh, a few months ago, uh, the IPCC published its Working Group 3 report, which is the report on mitigation pathways. And they looked at 230 different scenarios that had been run to limit warming to 1.5 degrees by the end of the century. And of those 230, 221 of them, so 96%, passed 1.5 degrees on the way there and then brought it back down. There are only nine scenarios in the report that did not overshoot 1.5 degrees. Um, okay, so these are the overshoot type scenarios. Yeah, so, okay. so I think that, you know, barring some sort of dramatic public awakening around climate globally in the next few years, you know, we, we are going to be in a world of overshooting 1.5 degrees. At the same time, you know, the, the distance between 1.5 and 2 is actually pretty huge in terms of its emissions implications. So again, without any net negative emissions, without any net carbon removal, we'd have to get global emissions to zero in the early 2040s to meet 1.5 degrees. We'd have to get global emissions to zero in the 2070s to, to limit warming to, you know, well below 2 degrees, or at least a, a 2 and 3 chance of avoiding 2 degrees warming. So a best estimate of like 1.8 degrees or so. And so, you know, I, I, I have a hard time imagining global net zero in 2040 or 2050 for that matter, but I can definitely see, you know, pathways to get us there in 2070 if we get our act together. Um, so I think that, you know, we're definitely in a world where we could limit warming to 1.7, 1.8, maybe even 1.6. I think the ship might have sailed at 1.5. We got, took too long to get our act together. Um, in terms of how to get to these well below two degree goals, though, um, you know, there's there's a few things that come to mind there, right? One is that it's important to realize there's there's very much a, a loading order of mitigation. You know, mm -hmm. coal goes away first. Uh, it's the least cost competitive day. It's the most dirty and carbon intensive. You know, they're the most mature alternatives to coal. Um, you know, electricity generation is in many ways easier to transition to other sectors because you're dealing with a much smaller number of plants. Um, the economics are much better to, for, you know, prematurely retiring them. Um, you know, the next sort of thing on that chain is oil. Um, again, we're having, you know, more cost competitive electric vehicles today, or oil is the second most carbon intensive fossil fuel. Um, there's going to be some sectors like aviation that are going to be tough to, to fully eliminate, uh, but we have alternatives, you know, in the pipeline that are cost competitive for a lot of others. Um, and then the final thing that's sort of the hardest to eliminate um, and that we see in our models is sort of the last thing that you get rid of is, is natural gas. Um, you know, it is the least carbon intensive of the fuels. Um, it is used in applications that have both tend to be a lot harder to replace things like industrial heat. Um, even gas for electricity generation is 
dispatchable in a way that other sources find challenging. Um, and, you know, gas for home heating, while we have increasingly cheap heat pumps, the turnover time for our housing stock is very long. Uh, and the economics of prematurely retrofitting and removing functional gas equipment to replace with uh, electric heating is, you know, it's a lot harder to make that pencil out than say if you're doing it at the point of building new homes. Um, so from a both utility and capital turnover time, it's it's a lot harder to fully get rid of gas. Um, and so, you know, we should sort of target our policies accordingly, I think, um, in terms of really prioritizing today, getting rid of coal as quickly as possible and, you know, prioritizing new gas or new applications that use electricity instead of gas and sort of letting that the, the sort of fleet of installed buildings and uh, technologies turn over there. Um, and then in terms of the policy side to, to help push those, you know, I think we need like, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think technology alone is going to save us. And again, I think a big part of that is that the benefits of carbon emissions are privatized and the costs are socialized. That is that, you know, the cost of climate change to society is, is not reflected in the market price of goods. And there's no mechanism outside of government intervention that can lead that to happen. Uh, and so there's been, you know, a basis for having governments intervene in prices to internalize externalities in the economics discipline for 100 years. You know, Arthur Pigou, uh, you know, famously posited the idea of Peguvian taxes um, and that have had a lot of buy-in from mainstream e economists, including folks like uh, Gregory Mankiw at Harvard, who was, you know, the economic advisor for the Bush administration here in the U.S. Um, you know, he started a Pigou club of economists who want to internalize the, the cost of climate change and in, in the price through carbon taxes. So, you know, there's there's a lot of good reasons from an economic standpoint to do that. It's proven a lot more politically challenging in practice in many countries, um, particularly here in the US, um, where it turns out it's a lot easier to have carrots than sticks. Um, it's a lot easier to pay things that are good rather than penalize things that are bad. Um, and those are, you know, not necessarily as economically optimal. You run into problems of governments picking winners. Um, but there's also ways to design sort of technologically neutral subsidies for clean energy, for example, uh, that can, you know, if, if not quite as effective as a price on carbon, can, can at least get you close. Um, and so I think that we are going to need to do some of that. Otherwise, we're sort of setting up an implicit subsidy for fossil fuels um, that's not enjoyed by clean energy. You know, the fact that they, they cause all these societal harms that they don't have to pay for uh, and clean energy. On the flip side is, is at least currently in most countries not you know subsidized for its for not causing those harms uh, and so we need at least one of those two to really drive the level of adoption of the sector that would be you know society and economically optimal okay and i guess that's a politically tough choice always of course to make because if you talk about the cost of that transition what you'd be almost arguing there is the how do you effectively pass on that cost to consumer and then people don't always understand I guess carbon taxes because essentially carbon tax gets collected but then gets redistributed effectively right that's how it should work but mm -hmm. when the minute you say the word tax people do not like that <laughs> yeah and again we don't need to be as a slave to what what is economically optimal right if, if we're in a second best world where we're just subsidizing clean energy for you know the fact that it's not causing pollution uh that itself is good. Or, you know, we're, we're in a more regulatory regime where we're res restricting, you know, both conventional and, and greenhouse gas pollution from fossil fuels in, in one way or another, you know, can help, uh, 
you know, drive adoption. So, you know, I, I originally came from a, a world of climate economics and, you know, I, I was very much into the, the perfect uh, optimal model or sort of market outcomes back as a, a grad student in college. But uh, the more I spend time I spend in the real world, I realize that sometimes, you know, the second or third best world is, is still better than the world we're in today. <laughs> That's an interesting outcome there. All right. Um, okay. Very interesting indeed. Um, just as a quick one on natural gas, there's an interesting one there around how it came kind of came third order in your in your list of sort of you know coal, then oil, then natural gas, just because of the reality around how these things work. Is one of the dangers the world that we have right now? And I'm sitting here in Europe, right? So we have a particularly acute need to switch out one particular country's fuel for another one. And mm -hmm. so it's a rush to LNG as an example, right? Which is encouraging other countries you know, uh, further afield, obviously, you know, including the US, but I'm thinking as far afield as, you know, Mozambique and um, Australia, etc. So, well, let's actually sanction all these big projects that are going to be around for 20 to 30 to 40 years, um, producing more LNG, because, you know, essentially the world now needs that. Um, but these things are sanctioned on the basis they're going to work for 20 to 30 to 40 years. Mm. Um, is the danger there that this is a short-term thing that we're seeing in Europe, but actually longer-term where the climate kind of, well, how we're trying to change the world is, is that those projects essentially, and we always talk about stranded assets and those sorts of things, do become stranded because that's where the world is having to trend, or is because natural gas isn't as hard hit as coal and oil in the grand scheme of what the problem is, you know, essentially you know look there's space here for some additional lng to come into the world as an i'm just making one example right mm -hmm. there are millions of different arguments made all over the place for different projects whether they're that they should be coming online or not but just specifically of the world we're in right now the dilemma that the europe faces security supply and then encouraging other countries to essentially sanction new projects to feed them is that a is that a, a realistic solution in that sense, or should we be looking at the world in a different way? I mean, it, it's definitely a suboptimal outcome in many ways, though, though I don't think any of the alternatives right now are particularly great. You know, another option is to, and which is already happening to extent, is, you know, to double down on coal use in Europe, yeah. Uh, yeah, which is, you know, from a climate standpoint, considerably worse. Um, but there is this question of infrastructure, right? If you are building these big LNG terminals, they're going to be around for many decades. How do you deal with that? Are you locking in future gas use in a way that you wouldn't otherwise if you weren't building these? Um, and I think there are some ways to mitigate that. You know, one is to make sure that all of the new LNG facilities are also designed with hydrogen in mind, because um, you know we may have a global hydrogen economy where we're shipping hydrogen rather than methane uh, in a low carbon future. Um, but also there's this question of where we're aiming, right? It, it is very hard to justify any new uh, gas development in a 1.5C world, or at least net gas development. You know, you could have potentially less in North America and more in Africa. Um, but if you're talking about a 1.8 degree world or 1.7 degree world, then, you know, maybe it's a little less inconsistent as long as we've pretty much gotten rid of it all by 2050 or so, right? Um, yeah. So it's it's sort of this question of, of where we're aiming in, in terms of, of what degree of, of long tail of fossil fuel use we can have. But I think the important thing is that, you know, while we might be diversifying our supply of gas, we're also 
as quickly as possible, reducing our reliance on gas um, and other fossil fuels that are, you know, in many ways been equally impacted. You know, price of coal has skyrocketed, price of oil has skyrocketed. Um, and I think that those all send powerful both market and policy signals to countries that there is a need to reduce uh, our, you know, exposure to price risk around these things, you know. Clean energy technologies have their own challenges around intermittency and other issues, but you know at least they're they're reasonably reliable in terms of long-term pricing. <laughs> uh, you're, you know you're not going to have the the price of electricity from solar suddenly triple uh, or increase tenfold as gas has. Um, so you know they're they're definitely a strong incentive to diversify and to invest more in clean energy as fossil fuel prices become high. Uh, and I think at the end of the day. The, the overall climate impact of this entire you know, geopolitical challenge that Europe is facing right now might end up being you know, positive for the climate simply because it is accelerating uh, this transition in a way that you know, was harder when fossil fuels were cheaper. Super Zeke. So look, I think we're all coming close to the end of our time, as is always the problem uh, with these conversations. Um, it think, always goes by too fast. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It's far too fast. I still have a list of questions in my head now, actually, around various topics. But I, I'll ask you a very big question, I guess, near the end. I mean, look, you, you mentioned this earlier in, in sort of the pathways you mentioned and your role of what you do at, uh, at Stripe as well, in terms of what your company focuses on as well. We've talked a lot about mitigation. <laughs> mm-hmm. We didn't talk that much about carbon removal um, as a concept. Now, it's a whole podcast in itself. I appreciate that. So let's not open the whole can of worms <laughs> around that area. <laughs> um, could, could you maybe just share a little bit, though, around how important is carbon removal as such of what we're talking about here? How important? Could it be? So I'm talking. How about how how important is it now, and how important could it be? Because clearly, someone like Stripe, you know, is taking the lead in some of this. You know, in terms of um, uh, get getting involved in it. Um, but we are, you know, it's a tiny, tiny industry right now, relative to many mm-hmm. other industries we might be talking about. So you know, it's, it's it's a very big question I'm asking you here. But in terms of the things that we've talked about. You know, how important is it now? How important can it be or should it be, do you think, in your mind in the future? And, and maybe if you've got anything around, you know, um, what you're working on at Stripe there you want to throw in in terms of the role that you're taking on there, that that'd be interesting to hear as well. Yeah. So, so the short version of it is that, you know, carbon remo- removal, particularly permanent carbon removal, putting CO2 back into the ground or turning into rocks is a tiny industry today, you know. Yeah. We something like 10,000 tons has been delivered as of last year uh, globally, uh, and we know we're going to need billions of tons for it. So it's an area where we can have an outsized impact because it's so nascent and, and sort of we know where it has to go. Um, at the same time, you know, we're always going to be in a world where it's, you know, upwards of 90 percent mitigation, reducing our emissions and probably only 10% or so carbon removal. But the reason we know we're going to need a decent chunk of carbon removal, at least, at least a few billion tons of carbon removal a year, which is a, a very big number, yeah. <laughs> particularly <laughs> compared to 10,000 today, uh, is you know for three reasons. One is that there's going to be some sectors or some long-tailed emissions that's hard to fully eliminate. Um, you know, We might be able to get global emissions down you know, 90 95%, but that still leaves us with a couple gigatons of, of resi- remaining CO2 emissions per year. Um, the second is CO2 is not the only game in town. Uh, there's other greenhouse gases, particularly methane and nitrous oxide. 
And it turns out those are much harder to fully eliminate than CO2, uh, in large part because of their sources from agriculture. Um, you know, we can probably, if we get rid of all fossil fuels, if we employ the best technologies, if we shift people's diets, if we do all that, we can probably cut their emissions by two thirds or so. But that leaves this remaining third of methane and nitrous oxide emissions that need to be counterbalanced by something. Uh, and so we need at least a few billion tons a year of carbon removal just to balance out those. Uh, and then the final piece of the puzzle is that one area that the science has gotten much clearer about in recent years is what we call the zero emissions commitment uh, associated with CO2. Um, so the good news is our best estimate now is if we get CO2 emissions down to zero, the world will stop warming pretty quickly. Um, there's not a huge amount of warming sort of in the pipeline or that's inevitable. The bad news there is, though, is even if we get emissions to zero, the world doesn't cool back down for many centuries to come without net negative emissions, without carbon removal. So the only way to deal with overshoot, the only way to ever bring temperatures back down, at least over timescales relevant to, to human beings, is to remove carbon from the atmosphere. Um, and so for those reasons, you know, we know we're going to need it. We know that we're only going to need it in a world where we've, you know, already or where we're already reducing emissions, you know, it, it certainly isn't a replacement for reducing emissions. There's no world where we're sucking out 40 billion tons of CO2 from the air, which is what we're emitting today. That would be bonkers and, and God knows how many trillions of dollars. Um, but, you know, we know that if we succeed with the mitigation side, we're also going to need a lot of removals. Uh, and right now it's an area that we've underinvested in, that we're sort of still playing catch up to. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why Stripe is focused there uh, and increasingly, you know, a number of other scientists and, and funders, uh, not to take resources away from the much needed mitigation, but to complement them by also investing in this. Um, and, you know, we have, a decade or so to figure out the space, to start scaling it up, to figure out what works, what doesn't work, um, because we're gonna need these billions of tons per year by 2050 or so. We're not gonna necessarily need them today. Uh, and so for that reason, you know, we really wanna cast a wide net. We want to try to explore a wide variety of different approaches. Um, we wanna fail fast, but we also wanna be willing to fail um, so we can learn what doesn't work. Um, and to that end, you know, we recently launched this new initiative called Frontier, uh, along with Google, uh, Meta, Shopify, McKinsey, uh, where we committed to spend a billion dollars over the next nine years um, to sort of kickstart permanent carbon removal technologies to fund, you know, a wide variety of, of early stage companies to do bigger offtake agreements going forward with those that successfully deliver so they can scale up. Um, and then to couple all of that with very rigorous monitoring, uh, reporting and verification. So we can actually track where that carbon is going uh, and figure out, you know, does kelp sinking actually permanently reduce carbon or does that end up back in the atmosphere in one way or another? Um, those sort of questions. I wish we had another hour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it is a fascinating topic in itself. And I, I, I've, I've listened to many other people talk about it and I'd love to maybe get you back another time Zig, to... To, to talk about that because it's certainly uh you know another whole area that people spend a lot of time talking about but as you rightly said it's small now but has a huge potential and can certainly add a lot to the to the opportunity set um of, of, of how we can reduce the um the um uh the temperatures on our planet but for now thank you so much for taking the time that you have for uh, not making it boring in the slightest, uh, but very interesting indeed, uh, and and for sharing, you know, essentially, well, what a what a climate 
scientist does and what you guys focus on and uh, and the breadth of things there um and the complexity um but also sort of you know looking at the pathways and uh, you know i think as you rightly said there the optimistic side of things as well of, of mm -hmm. what we can do to to achieve it so thanks very much Zeke. i really appreciate it oh it's great to be here perfect and thanks everyone else for listening as well um if you enjoyed that which i'm sure you did please do uh, hit subscribe, give us a great rating and share with your friends. Uh, talk to you next time.